You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you are King over every King. And we live to reach our world with your Gospel. May your spirit equip and empower us for that mission so that the world might know, love, and live for you. Amen. What's your mission in life? What's your mission in life? If you could write a mission statement for your life, what would it say? To be successful. To be rich to be recognized, to be married, to be known. If you had to write a mission statement for your life, what would it say? You know, whatever it might be, all of us live for a mission, don't we? All of us live for a purpose, an objective or a goal. We might not be aware of it. We might not know what it reads. But all of us live for and might even die for a mission. You know, over the last fortnight, we've seen that God's mission, and that mission statement can be summed up in just two words. Save sinners. Save sinners. God's mission is to restore this world to everything he created it to be. God's people, living in God's kingdom with God as their king, in many ways, ruling over them through Jesus as their king. And the heart of that mission is to save sinners. Because when God saves sinners, he will defeat death. And when he defeats death, he will renew this whole world. Jesus was born for that mission. Jesus died for that mission. And now, believe it or not, the king over this world, the king who defeated death itself, invites you and me to share in that mission. He invites us to join his mission to save sinners. Whatever your career, whatever your worldly ambition, I want you to know that it must serve this greater, grander and God-sized vision to reach our world for our King to reach our world for our King, or in the words of our church's mission statement, to reach our world, to know, love, and live for Jesus. You know, this mission is so great that whatever your worldly ambitions might be, it's so worth sacrificing them for the sake of the kingdom. It is so worth bringing them under the lordship of this one grand mission. You know, if you ever get the luxury of choosing what company you'll work for, you want to know that it's worth it, don't you? You want to know that you're joining the company that's expanding right across the world, that's opening new offices in Shanghai, in Beijing, in New York, in Geneva. You want to know that the company that you're joining is not on the brink of insolvency. It's not going into voluntary administration. No, you want to know that it's worth you casting your lot in with this firm. Well, if God is calling us to cast our lot in with his mission, then we'll want to know that it's worth it, won't we? 
And today, God is giving us three reasons why his mission is worth betting your life on. Three reasons why Jesus is a king worth following. And here they are. Our king has risen. Our king is reigning. And our king will return. Act 13. Crown. Well, the first reason is this. Our king has risen. You know, what's the point of joining a failure? You know, if you could choose to play in any NBA team, I wonder what team you'd choose to play for. You'd choose to play for the championship teams, wouldn't you? I mean, the Lakers, the Celtics, the Spurs, they would be the teams worth joining. I'll tell you what team you wouldn't join. Why would you join the Charlotte Hornets? Why would you join the New York Knicks? Why would you join a total joke? You know, if Jesus calls you to join his mission, you'll want to know that you're not following a total joke. You want to know that you've picked the winning side. Last week, we saw that Jesus died to save his people. He was shamed so that we might be saved, abandoned so that we might be accepted. He died so that we might live. But the truth is this, if if that's where the story stopped, if Jesus stayed dead, well, then this mission, it's a total joke. And you and I are wasting our time. If Jesus stayed dead, then he didn't defeat death. And if he didn't defeat death, then let's face it, Christianity is the world's greatest deception. If you're not a Christian, let me level with you. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, don't waste your time. Don't follow Jesus. Choose a different mission. Live for a different purpose. In fact, look at 1 Corinthians 15, 14. The apostle Paul concedes just as much. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Remarkable admission, isn't it? If Jesus stayed dead, don't follow him. Don't join a failure. But entertain the thought with me for a moment. What if? What if he didn't stay dead? What if he really did rise from the grave? What if he really did defeat death? I mean, surely, surely that would radically change your life. Surely that would make Jesus the one person worth following. Surely that would make him the one person worth living for. In Luke 24, we see that our king has risen. And because he lives, he is the one person worth betting our life on. Just look at verses 1 to 3. Three days after Jesus is crucified, the women come, quote, bringing the spices they had prepared. Spices to embalm a dead body. You see, these women are expecting Jesus to be well and truly dead. When you go to a funeral, you're expecting to see a body in the casket. But imagine turning up to a funeral only to find that the body is missing. I mean, you'd panic, wouldn't you? I know I, know I would. You might think, who stole the body? Well, Jesus' body was sealed in a tomb under locked guard to stop this very situation from happening. But here we are, 
The body cannot be found. The women look up and they see two men in dazzling clothes. These clearly are not ordinary people. They are clearly from God. And listen to what they say. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and arise on the third day. Friends, can you hear what these men are saying? Jesus really is who he said he is. He really is the Son of Man. He really is the Messiah. He really is the Son of God. And not only that, he really did what he said he did. He died in our place. He bore our sins. He defeated death and he reconciled us with God. You see, the resurrection is the ultimate vindication of Jesus. It is the absolute proof of the gospel. It is the final guarantee that following Jesus is worth it all. I don't know about you, but sometimes we can feel that living for Jesus is so disconnected from our world so intangible and so distant from reality. But can you see that the resurrection grounds the gospel in history? It locates Jesus in our world. The resurrection tells us that Jesus came to this physical world and his mission is to save real people, real sinners, just like you and me. And that means that you and I have the surest and the strongest reason to give our lives to the mission of God. Because our mission is grounded in the historical and reliable reality of the resurrection. The only mission worth living for, the only mission worth dying for, is to reach our world to know the God who defeated death itself. That's exactly what these women do. In verses 9 to 12, they reported all these things to the 11 and to the rest. Now, we need to understand, right? In that culture, women were treated as inferior, as unreliable witnesses. But look at what Jesus does. He chooses women to be his very first witnesses to the greatest news of human history. Might not have occurred to you, but the very first missionaries of the New Testament are Mary Magdalene. Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them. Think about that for a moment. In a culture that didn't believe a woman's word, the king of the world chooses women to speak for him. How remarkable is that? A word of encouragement to our sisters here in our church family. You know, you might think or look at church and think that, only, that God only calls men into gospel ministry. But I want you to see that is calling women as well. God is calling women to serve as missionaries, women's workers, biblical counselors and campus workers to be like these women, to be witnesses to the gospel. The truth is we need more women to step up and commit their every waking hour to the mission of God. And I hope and pray that God might be calling some of you today. Why? Why should we make God's mission our mission? Why should we commit our whole lives to reaching our world for our king? Reason number one, our king has risen. 
He has defeated death and he has given us the one mission truly worth living for. The one mission truly worth dying for. Reason number two, our king is reigning. Our king is reigning. You know, if you look around at our world overrun by virus and violence, you might think that there's no way that Jesus could be reigning. It looks like he's checked out of our world, doesn't it? I mean, in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we see that after 40 days, Jesus is taken up into heaven. So, has Jesus given up on our world? It sounds a bit like Jesus rose from the dead, passed the parcel, handballed the mission and said, good luck, and then bailed out of here as quickly as he could. But if that's the case, I don't know about you, but I don't feel so great about this mission anymore. Because if Jesus isn't reigning as king, then the truth is our mission is doomed to fail. How in the world will we reach our world for our king if our king isn't even on his throne? Well, friends, the message of Acts is this. Jesus reigns over our world through his people and by his spirit. Jesus reigns over our world through his people and by his spirit. And because our king is reigning, you know what? Our mission cannot fail. Notice in Acts chapter 1 verse 1, Jesus leaves his apostles, but before he does, he gives them instructions through the Holy Spirit. He's giving them their marching orders. And the spirit is the means by which God rallies them to his mission. And in verses 4 to 5, the Spirit lives in us and empowers us to carry out that mission in the world. Jesus commands his disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. And in verse 5, we see that promise is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Let's think back to some good times and memories in our church family. If you've seen one of our baptism services before, uh, I'll take a jug of water and pour it over the person. It's great fun. I'll drench them. I'll cover them. In one sense, I'll fill them with water. That's the image that Jesus paints as he pours his spirit on everyone who calls on his name. Let me be very clear. When we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this is not some special experience that happens after we trust in Jesus. No, from the very moment we trust in Jesus, the Spirit drenches us, covers us, and fills us. If you trust in Jesus, you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I want you to be confident about that. Has Jesus checked out of our world? Not at all. He's with us. He is in us and he's reigning through us by his spirit. Do you see, friends, the Holy Spirit guarantees Jesus' presence and he gives us Jesus' power. Just look at what the disciples ask him in verse 6. Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And in verses 7 and 8, Jesus answers, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Lord, 
Are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Jesus' answer, Oh, I'm restoring my kingdom all right, but I'm restoring it progressively, and I'm restoring it through you. And that means you. You know, Jesus is calling us to represent him in our world, to reign on his behalf, to reach our world for our king. You know, so many of us want to be chosen for something great, don't we? We want, to, we want that honour of being tapped on the shoulder to represent our school, to be headhunted to work the new client, to be drafted to play on the elite volleyball team. I want you to know that the risen king who defeated death, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is drafting you to play on his team. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. God could have saved us simply to bench us, but instead he drafts us onto his team. He gives us his jersey and sends us out onto the field to play for him. What an honor. What a privilege to represent the king of the world, to be used by God to restore his kingdom, to be used by God to extend his reign right across our world. You know, many of us know the excitement of getting a job offer, don't we? But I want you to know the joy of being offered a job cannot compare with the joy of being chosen by God for his mission in the world. And even if you never get offered the job of your dreams, I want you to know that the mission that God is offering you to join is far, far better. What a privilege. What a joy. But... Let's face it, when some of us think about mission, joy is not exactly the emotion we feel, is it? We feel fear. We feel terror. Some of you here, I'm sure, and in every church this is the case, some of you here are terrified that God might just call you into full-time gospel ministry or that you might marry someone in full-time gospel ministry. If that's you, dear brother and sister, be very, very afraid. God doesn't call everyone to be a pastor, a church planter, or missionary. But notice in verse 8, he calls all of us to be his witnesses. In one sense, he calls all of us to full-time gospel ministry, to serve him with every moment of our lives. What does your business card say? Your business card might read, Senior Auditor, General Practitioner, Investment Analyst. But that's not our primary job. All of us, without exception, have a far greater business card, and it reads, Gospel Witness. You know, you might think about Matt and Kate Vinicombe reaching Indigenous Australians on Groot Island with the gospel. And you might think to yourself, oh, I could never do that. Dear brother and sister, that is precisely what God is calling us to do right where we are. In fact, the very devotion that Matt and Kate have to reaching Groot Island for Jesus must be the very same heart that you and I have to reach our world for our King. If you're terrified that God might call you or your spouse into full-time gospel ministry, 
can say with a smile on my face, your deepest fears are realized. God is calling all of us to nothing less than mission in every area of our lives to represent our King, to restore His kingdom to this world. Don't be afraid. Be excited. What an honor. What a joy. I know that others of us here are terrified of speaking the gospel. We're terrified of speaking the gospel. And if that's you, be very afraid. Because in verse 8, we represent our king by being his witnesses. If you've ever been in court before or watched Suits, you'll know that a witness does not sit in silence. She doesn't mime her testimony for the jury to try and guess what happened. No, she opens her mouth and she speaks. Let me tell you what I saw. Friends, our mission isn't to silently live a good life for the world to try and guess the gospel. We must open our mouths and speak. Let me tell you how Jesus saved me. And I know that others of us still are terrified of going for the gospel. And if that's you, you guessed it, be very afraid. Because in verse 8, Jesus sends out his disciples in expanding concentric circles from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. He's sending us out from the center to the furthest reaches of our world so that every tribe might worship Christ as king. He's calling us to reach not just our neighborhood, not just our city, not just our nation, but our whole world that it might know, love and live for Jesus. God's mission has always been to restore this whole world to everything he created it to be. His vision isn't just for one people, but all people. It's not just for one tribe, but every tribe. No, friends, we need a vision as big as God's mission. You know, when I lived in Canberra, some of my friends in my small group worked as diplomats for DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And this is how it works if you work for DFAT. You spend your first few years in Canberra, and then, they're, you know, it's suffering now, reward later, right? And after your first few years in Canberra, they're posted on their first international mission. It's always very exciting to get that email. Everyone, everyone wants the world cities of Geneva, New York, London. Can you guess where my friend got posted? Papua New Guinea. You know? Do you know what he said? I serve at the pleasure of my country. I serve at the pleasure of my country. Friends, what if King Jesus were to say to you, I'm sending you to Papua New Guinea. I'm sending you to East Malaysia. I'm sending you to a closed country in the Middle East. Would you obey? Would you go? Would you say, I serve at the pleasure of my king? Friends, we need to have a vision for our world because Jesus reigns as king over our world. Thirdly and finally, our king will return. Our king will return. You know, as Jesus' disciples watch him leave, the two men in white clothes tell them, 
This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. You know, when we know that our king will return, that is on his way back, this mission to reach our world for our king, it takes on a real urgency, doesn't it? The clock is ticking. And when Jesus returns, he will come to judge the living and the dead. He will restore his kingdom. He will deliver his people and he will judge everyone who rejects him as their king. Later on in Acts 17, this is what Paul tells the Athenians. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness. By the man he has appointed, he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Friends, the resurrection isn't just proof of what Jesus has done. It's proof of what Jesus will do. He will return to judge this world in righteousness. You know, all of us live out certain beliefs that mostly sit beneath the surface. And these beliefs, in effect, they're the practical, assumed mission statements of our lives. So if we believe that only marriage will make me happy, we'll always be desperate, but never content. Or if we believe I need to succeed for people to respect me, we'll always be hustling, but never respected, or at least never feel respected. We all live by some truth, whether we realize it or not. I wonder, how might our lives look different if we lived out the truth? The time is short and Jesus is returning. How might that reshape our priorities, redefine our goals, reorder our diaries, reprioritize our budgets? If we really believe that the time is short and Jesus is returning, might we be more willing to sacrifice for the mission of God? Let me give you some examples of sacrifices people I know have made because they believe this to be true. Danielle works four days in corporate, but devotes one day each week to reach city uh, city workers with the gospel. Kevin uh, commits to giving as much money to gospel ministry every year as he does to his daughter's private school fees. Gary walked away from a medical career to pastor a church. And I know multiple men and women who have chosen not to marry so that they might devote themselves to the work of the Lord. How might our lives look different if we lived out that truth? The time is short. Jesus is returning. Why commit ourselves to the mission of God? Our King has risen. Our king is reigning. Our king will return. Friends, I want to end by giving you four practical points of application. This is going to be the most practical sermon you'll ever hear. There are four points of application. The first two are for all of us. And the last two will depend on how God has created you. Firstly, all of us must pray. All of us must pray. In Matthew 9, Jesus says, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Will you commit to pray for the spread of the gospel in our world? 
Will you commit to pray regularly for gospel workers, church planters, missionaries, and for gospel poor nations? Why not commit to praying for one gospel poor nation regularly? I know that some of you here have a real heart for Japan. It's not just before the anime. That place desperately needs the gospel. Less than 1% of its population are genuine evangelical believers. Does your heart bleed for Japan? Will your heart for Japan lead you to pray for Japan? All of us must pray. Secondly, all of us must give. In Philippians 4, Paul considers financial giving as real partnership in the gospel. They say that our budget is our clearest value statement. Well, does our budget reflect a conviction that the time is short and Jesus is returning? You might want to know, what can I give to? Why not give to Matt and Kate who are reaching Indigenous Australians on Groot Island? Why not support future trainees who train here at Cross and Crown, who sacrifice their studies and work to train for God's mission in the world? All of us must pray, and all of us must give. Thirdly, some of you, some of you must go. Some of you must go. If you have a godly character, and you're able to teach God's word and lead his people, then God is calling you to go. Some of you should be considering paid gospel ministry as a pastor, church planter, missionary, counsellor, or other gospel worker. If that's you, can I encourage you? Start planning now. As a church, we want to train five gospel workers over the next five years. Five gospel workers over the next five years. And however God calls you to serve him, whatever he has for your future, we want to train you for his mission in the world. Five in five by 2025. Let's make that a reality. And fourthly, some of us, some of us must send. Some of us must send. Some of us must make sending gospel workers as our primary mission. To notice someone in our church who has the character, convictions and competence to go. To headhunt them as such. To tap them on the shoulder. To encourage them to go and then enable them to go. All of us must pray. And all of us must give. The only question is, will you send or will you go? There's no other option. Or, if there is one, in the words of John Piper, go, send, or disobey. It's a great challenge, isn't it? All of us must pray. All of us must give. Will we go or will we send? Friends, which will you choose? Our risen King is calling us to join his mission. Will we respond with these words? I serve at the pleasure of my King. Acts 13, crown. Let me pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you are King over every King. And we live to reach our world with your gospel. May your spirit equip and empower us for that mission so that our world might know, love, and live for you. For your great glory we pray. Amen.